status quo right now is is very 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 uniform and yet they call it choice the same high street from milan to mumbai with the same players be them high end or, or high street that's not choice choice is a sea of alternatives and differences and different point of views and different styles so big changes but i think that that's what the the new generation is is looking for I am Susie Menkes and you are listening to my podcast Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. Welcome to the fourth series of my podcast, Creative Conversations. I hope you've all been keeping well since we last connected. It's almost a year since I launched the first episode of my podcast with an interview with Maria Grazia of Dior. And what a strange year it has been. For the first episode this season, I'm talking to Orsolo de Castro, who spearheaded the global movement for change within the fashion industry. We first met in 2006 at her London Fashion Week Aesthetica Eco Fashion Initiative. For Orsolo de Castro, all you need is love. Love for fashion and love for all beautiful things that last. Talking now, in 2021, to the passionate founder of Fashion Revolution is a lesson about lasting. Or, as she puts it, re-wearing your clothes can be a revolutionary act. Loved Clothes Last is the title of her new book, published by Penguin Random House, and a passionate ode to the rebirth of old friends lurking in closets and stuffed into drawers. Upcycling is so much more than a fashionable trend. For Ursula, it was born of the collapse of the Rana Plaza factory in Bangladesh, where an eight-storey building rammed with clothing workers collapsed eight years ago in 2013, leaving a death toll of 1,134. Instead of just wringing her hands like so many in the fashion business, Ursula asked herself why people demanded ever cheaper clothes and what could be done to make a lasting difference. It was then that Ursula founded fashion's largest global activism movement, Fashion Revolution. It was designed to change the way the industry works and to bring cultural change in our attitude to clothes. Next week marks the 8th Fashion Revolution Week. Over 100 countries will come together to take responsibility, remember the lives lost and demand that no one should die for fashion. In our conversation, Ursula's urgent enthusiasm made me feel that we can all be fashion revolutionists, that my clothes and yours deserve new lives instead of being cast off and thrown away. Her book is a mix of practical repair with thoughtful and passionate commitment to fabric and treatment that would prolong life. As the Fashion Revolution Initiative starts next week, let's hear Ursula explain to us all about it.
I'm so pleased to see you. I'm so pleased to see you too. Don't you feel rather at this moment that the world has caught up with you rather than you catching up with the world? It seems amazing to me. Well, it does feel like, you know, 20 odd years of saying the same things are finally somehow paying off. But it's, it's such a global shift that I think, you know, many, many people are feeling heard. And, and that's the sort of point of it all, really. Well, I think the point of it all is that you have published this incredible book, which says everything in its cover story, Loved Clothes Last. What a great name for a book. And I like the rest of your words too, how the joy of rewarding and repairing your clothes can be a revolutionary act. What compelled you to write that? So the, the story of what compelled me to write the book is quite odd because I never would have thought that I could do such a thing as write a book. But I was contacted by an agent on Instagram of all places and, and they're a big literary agency in the UK. And um, Kate suggested that she really wanted to find somebody to write a book on how to mend and... I am really bad at mending, but of course, I totally see the point to it. But so I, I thought, well, this is an opportunity. I know I have a lot to say on the subject. I know I would be terrible at writing a manual. I can hardly, you know, write instructions at all. But I went to the meeting and I said, I don't think I can do you a how to, but I can definitely do you a why to. And she loved the idea of having a why to mend as well as, you know, with bits of how to involved. But that was the principle for me. Um, it, it's very difficult to change our habits unless we understand why we need to change our habits. And so what I wanted to do was to write a book that explained about this industry in a way that make you reconnect with it. You know, we all wear clothes. 100% of the population wear clothes. Whether you like fashion or not, you still have to wear clothes. So in that, we have a huge thing in common. And I know you started the book just before lockdown. And how long have you had the urge to write these powerful words? It's been accumulating in your mind, you've just said, for some time. How long do you think you can imagine that you would perhaps not write, but talk about this subject? It must be 20 years, isn't it, since you first found me? It's a long time and you were certainly instrumental, which is why you are thanked at the back of my book um, for having been one of the very first people to really hear it and really, you know, really divulge it. But I finished the book one week before lockdown. I had a very short time in which to write it, only maybe four or five months. So in that sense, yes, I did vomit it all out. And it was very definitely all inside me. And in, in this case, not that I want to, you know, make things um, overtly simple, but in my case, COVID has actually facilitated the spread of this book. Because before COVID, these subjects were still a little bit more hidden and potentially a bit more niche. We've seen so much in this year of lockdown. We've seen more injustices. We've, you know, as always, like with Rana Plaza, sometimes something happens and it magnifies everything that's been wrong. And there is a shift towards a speed of understanding. And that's what I've noticed over the last year. So in my case... Something I have been thinking and saying, you know, to whoever will listen for, yes, over 20 years now suddenly resonates so much more than it ever has before. Well, well here's a question then. Um, you have said to me that the tradition of repairing clothes is revolutionary. 
Can you explain what you mean exactly? Because I promise you, my mother and grandmother always had a pin and thread in their hands. They were always making and mending. Did it suddenly go out of fashion? Yes, it did. And I can completely understand why. I mean, still, the fashion industry, which is one of the biggest industries in the world, one of the most polluting, but one of the most linked with innovation, it still is linked to female. You know, it is a, it is still imagined as this kind of, you know, making and, and it has that image. I understand why women in the 60s burned their bras and frankly got rid of their needles. I understand why potentially there was a movement that had to be liberated by this domesticity. But we're rediscovering it now. And as an antidote to a throwaway society, the concept of keeping is revolutionary because everywhere you turn, people say throw. Culture says throw. Influencers say throw. So when you're saying keep and use your needles and your threads as you know, your your instruments, your tools, but those threads also as your tattoos, you know, your 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 signs of visible mending. And that is nowadays um, an antidote and therefore part of a revolutionary movement. I know it's a bit contradictory, but it very definitely is. I think it's important to put some of these things in the words of your book, which is fascinating. And it's when you, um, in the introduction already, you start by writing, fashion is not frivolous. It is actually incredibly important. And to define it as a series of passing trends is to deny its fundamental role in human culture and history. I mean, I didn't expect to read at the beginning of the book about circular fashion. It, it's so refreshing and almost saying that we should have fashion, but we need to be responsible with our fashion. Do you feel like that? One of my roles as a fashion journalist is to report from the fashion shows. And you see, that means new clothes, because if they're not new, why, why am I reporting on them? So how do we interject yet at the same time enjoy fashion? Well, I mean, everything I do comes from the point of view of loving fashion. I mean, I wouldn't be in this industry unless I was compelled by the love of clothes. I can talk about clothes for weeks, let alone days. And I don't want to dismantle an industry that I fundamentally believe to be incredibly important in terms of the, the, the work that it provides, the creativity it fosters, you know, the fact that it is such a barometer of what happens in our culture, in our daily lives. Um, I just want to redefine the concept of new, for instance, because sometimes something old, customized can be very, very new. And I want to, um, you know, redefine the role of speed and quantity, not quality and newness. Um, I do believe that we have to have new clothes. I celebrate new clothes coming. It's not about stopping. It's about slowing down. It's about ensuring that we demand better, not more. We don't need more. We have enough. And we need to retake, I feel, this industry into our own hands and ask for that quality that's somehow gone down the drain. Ask for that creativity that is impossible within this speed. And support the small as well as just looking at the huge. Um, for me, that's the real alternative. This industry should be about differences, not about sameness. 
That's the great beauty of fashion being individual and each and every one of us interpreting it in a different way. That's what we've lost with, you know, the, the, the gigantification of everything. I'd like to get rid of the dinosaurs and introduce the mammals again. But you were very um, strong in your feelings. And um, in one of your recent Instagram posts, it's very clever and powerful. And it, it stopped me in my tracks. Can you describe the image and message you put beside it? Well, the image is a, is a collage and it shows a catwalk show, um, but the, somehow the models are the garment work, the cotton pickers in this case, the people processing the cotton. And it's very definitely a collage. Nobody ever came up with that show. But the concept of the post is that, in my opinion, uh, the fact that we automatically assume that a fast fashion piece is not good enough to be kept and to be repaired is a massive problem because it does really encourage a throwaway society and it encourages people not to respect the work of the workers that made that piece. So I argue instead that the majority of fast fashion is simply made. And that means that it is simple to repair. My point being that if you've got, you know, a, a hem that's wobbling because it's not that pristinely sewn, if it falls off, anyone can repair it, really. You don't need to be an expert seamstress. And what I want to do is encourage those people in our communities who have to buy cheap clothes because they can't afford to buy different, to also feel that they can mend those clothes or have them mended. I also say at the very bottom of that post that I firmly believe that those brands that produce cheap clothes have an obligation to provide cheap repairs. It's society that needs to bring back a culture of appreciation over the clothes we own and facilitate all of us to somehow find our sustainable solutions. Right now, sustainability is very much for those who can afford it. Um, you know, if you can afford to buy better, if you can afford to treat your clothes better, then they will last longer. But what about if we take fast fashion and start thinking differently about that product? What about if 16-year-olds who buy, you know, that jump, you know, sweatshirt or whatever, bothered to mend it when it broke rather than buying another one? What a strong message to the fast fashion brands that would be to slow down and produce better rather than more. But Ursula, let's start with you. How can we all organise and change our wardrobes to stop this global terrible problem of waste and hoarding and the treatment of the people who are making things? But if we start with you, with your closet, your cupboard with your clothes, how do you manage your wardrobe? Okay, so first of all, I'm a really bad wardrobe manager. I have a wardrobe, I have a chaired robe, and I have a flawed robe as well, as does my teenage daughter. But so it also means that you don't necessarily have to be particularly tidy or organized to do this. Mine is a very, very emotional um, journey. I consider my own closet, my own wardrobe to be in the fashion supply chain. I know that most people think of the supply chain as being some faraway land, but the minute that you buy something, you become responsible for your use, the end of use and the end of life of that product. And I feel that sense of responsibility with everything I own. And so in my case, my wardrobe is A, enormous, absolutely vast. I have loads of clothes, which I wear on rotation and care for also on rotation. So my first is an analysis. 
What do I wear regularly? What could be worn differently? What needs maintenance? And what is that maintenance? Is it a hole that needs to be repaired? And who could do that if I can't, if I haven't got the time to crochet around it, which is what I would normally do. But I have a map of my wardrobe and an understanding of those clothes. And I have everything in my wardrobe. I have inherited clothes, vintage, secondhand. I have beautiful pieces from the designers that I mentor. And there's more and more of them. But I do have fast fashion in there. I have bought fast fashion, either new in particular secondhand. And I treat everything equally. I don't treat my designer piece any different to my cheap piece. They are equally washed in the same way, hand washed if they need be, depilled when they pill, um, you know, checking for seams that they're not falling down so it's easier to pick them up if they've only dropped by a centimetre. So I apply that level of care. And it's a little bit like Do you remember when there was that article about HRH talking to the plants? Well, I'd say I talk to my clothes and I ask them what they need. Um, I also do an infinite amount of swapping and sharing with girlfriends and daughters and my son, my my cousins, you know, it, it, it's a constant circle. So I'm not just aware of my wardrobe, I'm actually aware of what's inside the wardrobes of other people. So it's this kind of multiple styling and, and multiple awareness. But ultimately, it's time. Talking of time, I hope that people will find the time to read all of your book because there's so many different attitudes in it. And it's really important that the people understand not just how you can mend and care for garments. I mean, I don't want for a start to give away too much of your book, but also people may feel they can do that. But it's it's about the reasons to repair and rewear. What is your advice on that? I mean, do you have really to love what you bought? to repair it and rewear it? Or is it just an attitude that you feel people should have with everything they've ever worn? Everything they've ever worn and everyone. I mean, in the sense I can't navigate, you know, I, I am the exception in this case. You know, I am the, the kind of fashionista that loves her clothes and spends an awful lot of time thinking about it. I wouldn't wish that on other people necessarily. It's not their job. It is mine. But the reality is that, you know, um, My book is not just for people who love fashion. My book is for people who love the planet and love other people. And if you don't really give a hoot about clothes, but you do care for the environment and maybe you buy organic food and you've made that connection between the food that is grown, the soil that it's grown on, the people that farm it, and then you and your community. I just say we should do the same with fashion. And you might not want to mend your clothes ever, but you can speak truth to power when it comes to the reason for mending, when it comes to making mending more available in the community, in schools, and the importance of the longevity of our clothes. My book is more about longevity than it is about circularity. Circularity is quite technical, quite difficult for consumers to actually achieve, obviously not circular thinking, but actual circularity. But longevity is so easy. It's so available to us all. And it's so impactful as a consumer demand. It's the real way of slowing things down and ultimately changing an attitude of, you know, overproduction, mass production and accelerated disposal. So it's not just a call for people who know how to mend. It's a call for people who know how to think and have, you know, the willingness to see that there is something that we can do and it can start with the clothes that we wear.
There are really a lot of initiative and suggestions on how we can all live more consciously. You're at the front of all this, the forefront. The book now is, as you say, probably a whole 20 years since you first started to fight the cause and stand up for our planet. Has it really been that long and how did it start? It has been that long and, well, in my case, it started creatively. When I was a designer, I had my small label from somewhere. The turning point was very much Estetica at London Fashion Week with the British Fashion Council. And you were very much the person that validated that in one Tuesday column for the IHT. So, you know, that was a turning point for me, Susie, a big one. Um, Your curiosity, your intelligence in describing what we were trying to do, you're not using any of the kind of words that would stigmatise what was in fact, as you saw, um, a movement for the future, not, you know, uh, nothing else. Let's not talk too much about me because I feel I could have done so much more. But when you started the movement, should we call it that, of um, fashion revolution for people around the world to make the fashion industry work better. So now Revolution Week is coming up, isn't it? It's, um, it happens every year, even when there's a pandemic. And it's starting this 24th of April, because that date is the anniversary of a very terrible moment for the world, the 2013 Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh. Such a terrible tragedy. And some of those garment factories who manufacture clothing from some of the biggest global brands for things that everybody around you is wearing, they collapsed and killed 1,134 people and injured more than 2,500 people, making it the fourth largest industrial tragedy in history. People don't talk much now about it, the Rana Plaza disaster. It's fading into memory, but it mustn't. Tell us a bit more about your movement, the aims and what you're trying to achieve with this terrible history and a brighter future. Well, the movement, definitely, Fashion Revolution starts as a result of the Rana Plaza collapse. You know, within days of the Rana Plaza collapse on the 24th of April 2013, activists were, you know, really, it was the worst I told you so you could possibly imagine because anyone that had been working on the ground knew knew that this kind of a tragedy was bound to happen. There had been Tazreen factory fire only two years before or three years before. So it was evident that it was going to happen. Um, The idea for Fashion Revolution actually came to one of our Aesthetica designers, Carrie Summers, and her brand Pachacuti. We'd been we'd known each other for years, and she called me literally after having a bath and saying, "We have to do Fashion Revolution. We have to." And I jumped at it, and the rest is is somehow history. We've got you know over ninety countries taking part nowadays, and each with their own perspective of the fashion industry. That's what makes us so unique. That we're not necessarily London centric or New York centric. We have country coordinators in ninety two countries telling us what they feel, what they think, showing us different perspectives, which are very regional and very local. That's the strength of Fashion Revolution. And that's what the movement needs and the world needs. We need to hear each other's perspectives um, much more to understand the need and how this industry can make things better. We advocate for radical transparency and public disclosure, well aware that it is but the first step. But we believe at Fashion Revolution that you can't really fix what you can't see and that we we want to 
see an industry that conserves and restores the environment and values people over profits and growth. And, you know, we, we're getting closer to, to achieving at least more awareness. Um, Ursula, will you tell me a little bit about the Fashion Open Studio, this initiative that you're behind? And it's a whole week of presentations and talks and openings and workshops. Tell us a bit more. It's still part of um, Fashion Revolution. So at Fashion Revolution, we very much feel that if we challenge the mainstream, then we also need to champion the radicals. And these are the radicals. I mean, you know, these are small emerging brands from all over the world who are making fashion better and differently. The concept of Fashion Open Studio, again, is not to upscale a few to enormous height, but to replicate thousands um, in order to provide those points, you know, that, that beauty in, in, in the difference. And we do, we have designers from all over the world. This Fashion Revolution Week, which is start, which is in April, around the time of the Rana Plaza, so I think it's 19th to 25th this year, we will see designers from, you know, 14, 15 countries spread all over, maybe even more. And we learn from them, you know, their challenges, their team their production, their processes, their inspiration. It does what it says on the tin. It's about the studio rather than about the final product and the final collection. It celebrates the people, not just the designer. It celebrates the processes and not just the finished product. But it is the kind of fashion that people want to see. People become really invested when they know how things are made and by whom. We're expected to trust brands. So you've started the Fashion Transparency Index, where you review 250 of the world's largest fashion brands and retailers, and you rank them according to how much they disclose about their social and environmental policies and the practices and the impact. This has been going, I think, for five years now. So are you seeing from this work a change and more transparency? Yes, we are. Absolutely, undoubtedly. And I think that this is one of the issues that Fashion Revolution has been um, very much at the forefront. I mean, again, transparency doesn't necessarily lead you to best practice. And this needs to be underlined in fluor 75 times. But transparency leads you somewhere. It helps organizations on the ground to know where factories are and who is running them and, and how they're operating. It helps nerdy consumers who want to know how their clothes are being made. It is a very important first step towards this visibility that we need to have. The fashion industry is opaque. The supply chain is very complicated and convoluted. But if we want to avoid disasters and if we want to encourage best practice, we do need to see and be able to compare. It's public disclosure that is comparable and easily explained. This is what we're asking. No brand is anywhere near scoring the 100%. And there's lots of shift. Some brands do better one year, slightly less the year before. But I tell you one thing that the Fashion Transparency Index has done, and it is forcing brands to compete with each other on who discloses the most and who is the most transparent. So therefore, for, for once, competing on doing something good rather than competing on how much they're selling.
I love your idea, your feeling that loved clothes last. This comes to the absolute core of what you're trying to say in your book. But it's more difficult to um, understand really how you can be expected to trust these brands. How do you feel about that? Do you think that they really are working for you, that they're in their in the spirit of the brands now comes something quite different? Well, I don't believe that they're working for us. I often say this, you know, brands are supposed to be working for us, not the other way around. I feel that they've made an enormous amount of money from us without necessarily giving us, you know, enough information to make better choices. So I do put the onus firmly on brands. You know, we do not trust brands, but we we ought to, you know, we ought to have that sense of, um, you know, I know that I can be, you know, offered the right product by a brand that I want to wear. And on the issue on whether brands are doing enough to change and whether we can trust them, I always say the same thing. And my opinion in this is actually quite irrelevant. What is incredibly important is that you inform yourself as their customer, because at the end of the day, you're the one that needs to trust them. And you're going to have a different opinion to mine. I mean, you know, some people may look at a greenwash and think it is a greenwash. Other people might think, oh, but nevertheless, it has instructed me on on you know, the use of materials I didn't even know existed. It could be a step in the right direction. To a certain extent, mainstream brands are all greenwashing right now because nothing that they do will ever somehow rebalance centuries of, of human and, and environmental exploitation. But which ones are doing it in a way that you can trust and which ones are actually just, you know, taking the piss? And if you study, if you learn, if you do your homework, you'll have clues. Even if you are a technophobe such as me, there are enough instruments and tools to find out more. So the main mantra of Fashion Revolution has always been be curious, find out, do something. The find out bit is crucial because we've, we are sold fast fashion on the premise that it's there, we've got five pounds in our pocket and we can buy it. We mustn't take information in the same way. Acquiring knowledge takes time. So the point about the book is also that why would you acquire something that you're not being, that you're not in love with? You know, just buy something that you love and then you will give it the time to mend it and keep it. And this is the same with information if we want to find out what the brands are doing. I'd like to ask you something about your Italian background. Do you think that the way that the handcraft has stayed right through to today in Italy, has that given you a chance to appreciate garment mending with beautiful crochet and sewing. Do you think perhaps Southern Europe is a good example that has gone in Northern Europe of making things by hand? Well, I'm certainly a product of where I come from. I'm from Venice. So I was, you know, I was sort of spoon fed Burano lace with, with my milk pretty much. And it's, you know, I'm very, very acutely aware also of the made in Italy. I often cite it as one of the pockets of real dignity when it comes to the industry and the way that small Italian industries are operating right now I often call it almost like it's almost like an industrial artisanship, the way that, that they're working in, in there. And I think that this, uh, you know, th the risk is, unfortunately, is that with every beauty, you have also the monster. And in south of Italy, we have sweatshops and exploitation, as we do in Leicester over here. So th the lines blur, I think, between, um, you know, a thing of beauty becoming then 
unfortunately an instrument for 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 exploitation but i think that the 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 beautiful manuality that i certainly inherited and saw throughout my career has been completely inspirational and i believe also not just for me but it could be to the whole of the industry when we look at the way that smaller realities are operating over there i i think we started our talk here with me saying that um sewing was very much part of my childhood with my mother and my grandmother sewing uh, i didn't mention the fact that i'm sure you know that my um grandfather was not sewing and um my grandsons now two boys take some um interest in the idea of sewing so maybe we'll catch up because that's your idea isn't it that not to think of it entirely as women's work but as a, a sort of modern empowering change making medium for both men as well as women Absolutely 100%. And in fact, uh well, my grandson is uh brilliant at embroidery. Um but my own brother used to knit when he was, you know, he had an accident and he was in hospital for a while and you know, my mum used to knit next to him and so he he learned how to knit and he was actually way better than I was. So it isn't uh, it isn't anymore a female prerogative, although I'm proud of the female connection. But, you know, in jokingly, I always say that uh if you look at the gesture of scrolling on a phone is not that dissimilar to actually knitting and what you get at the end of knitting is so much more satisfactory it's an object um my young cousin um also is has just he's i think 7 years old and asked his mum for a sewing machine and he's proficient at sewing so these are the stereotypes that can be changed in a minute we know for instance from fashion culture that some of the most incredible couturiers were men so you know there is the machine sewing machine that's machinery um there is the sort of you know the time and the patience i believe we should reintroduce it as you know a gender neutral um amazing pastime that is as addictive as scrolling on tiktok but infinitely more productive uh, there are so many um things in your book which are really fascinating and at the core of it all i i get the you know, your feeling that our systems need to be disrupted what in your opinion would it take for fashion to finally become a force for good a force for good in fashion well it takes a lot it's going to need to take a lot um but for me it always boils down to changing one of the fundamentals unfortunately of the fashion industry which is the one i'm not that keen on and it's this concept of aspiration 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 only when we talk about the end product not when we talk about the entire supply chain for me a luxury product needs to be 100% traceable and needs to provide some luxury to the people who make it same with a democratic product you can't describe something as being democratic unless it affords democracy to the supply chain workers so the all industry this is not just the fashion industry all industry will need to redress some historical wrongs which date back to um the beginning of time you know from the patriarchy to colonialism but basically as people we don't treat each other as equals and therefore at this point in time we're not equally invested in the well-being of the planet that we all share i make this example 
several times. But if you are a garment worker and you're in fear for your job, you won't be able to speak up about the environmental um, injustices that you see in your place of work. Same as if you are, um, you know, a, a young mother with many children in lockdown and, and not sufficient income, you'll stress to shop plastic free. Um, you know, society needs to provide those um, those opportunities to be sustainable. And the fashion industry needs to respect its workers, respect the people who buy it as well by being more inclusive. Um, and above all, you know, we need to ensure that there is, for me, a much bigger alternative, that we don't just have 40 mainstream brands controlling such a huge, over 90% of the market, but that we really give space to those that are the real alternatives, designers and systems that are there to disrupt the status quo. I mean, the status quo right now is is very, very, very uniform, and yet they call it choice. The same high street from Milan to Mumbai with the same players, be them high end or, or high street, that's not choice. Choice is a sea of alternatives and differences and different point of views and different styles. So big changes, but I think that that's what the, the new generation is, is looking for. Here is the conundrum, as far as I'm concerned. I'm a fashion editor. I've spent many decades of my life thinking about fashion and thinking about clothes. And you're saying, really, that the best way to combat the system is to stop creating too many things that people don't need. But where does that fit into my world? Are there one or two examples you'd suggest to our listeners that they could do right now? And remember that one of your listeners is me. What can we do right now to change the world? Would it be encouraging consumers to ask questions like, where are the materials sourced and then only buy them if it seems good? Tell me, how should we make the first step into a new world of fashion? So the first word is again time. And the second one is looking at how you spend your time when you relate to fashion. I mean, as, as you, you said before, it's the things we don't need that shouldn't be created. But need is a funny word, isn't it? I mean, you know, I feel that we need um, fashion and its poetry and it, its creativity and, and its, you know, it, its infinite possibilities. So my main thing is when you go buy clothing, just think how much time you spend looking for that perfect size, that perfect fit. You know, does it have to be short or long? Start to buy to fit your principles instead. So rather than looking for the perfect mustard yellow which needs to be a bit brown and a bit acid look for a mustard yellow that doesn't include azo dyes that is you know processed more um in in a, in a in a more ecologically friendly way that you can find some certification over the material that has been you know dyed too so these are the things that we can all do that we can start to change the way that we are programmed when we buy clothes we all do it with food by the way the first thing you do when you buy a pot of yogurt is check whether it contains harmful 
example, e-colorants, how long it's going to last in the fridge and what is its sell-by date. Do we do the same with our clothes? Do we check that it's got some harmful, banned, toxic chemicals? Because many do. Do we check that it's polyester and knowing that if we wash it too often, it will release microfibers? Do we wash differently? So this is information that we as customers have, an, have a right to be able to see. And unfortunately, we don't. So right now we need to look for it. And the act of looking for that, of finding your perfect piece that fits your size and fits your principle in itself, that search will open up your mind and I think incite you and inspire you to keep walking on this journey, which is very, very enriching, by the way. Well, Ursula, I'm looking for your next book, which I hope will be called The Power of Purple, a colour that both you and I are wearing today and that I never stop wearing. I now have this terrible feeling that I once read that purple, to, to make something purple, you have to do all sorts of terrible things to the fabric. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I can still go on wearing my favourite colour. I think you should definitely go on wearing your favourite colour. I mean, you know, the point is that what do we do until we have an alternative? We can only ask for things to be better. But if we're not wearing anything, then how can we make those changes? It's, you know, it's about, now you've mentioned to your listeners that potentially they have to be wary of any color it doesn't just have to be the color purple that's enough it makes people curious what do you mean a chemical dye can have a you know a profound effect on the fabric that's the kind of knowledge that's the kind of thinking that we need but I think you should definitely still wear purple I will well I really feel that loved clothes last has made a difference to me. It's the name of your book, which I have found fascinating to read and, and would like to encourage other people to read as well. But just hearing you and your enthusiasm, I think I'd call it, for making the world a better place when it comes to clothing is very heartwarming. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much for talking to me. <laughs> Thank you, Ursula. It's so inspiring to hear you talk about your book and our beloved fashion industry. I truly hope that the long-awaited changes will come through faster. You are so inspiring. Thank you for all that you're doing to bring about change. Fashion Revolution Week is happening next week across the world from the 19th to the 25th of April. There are many ways in which you can all participate. Spread the word and educate yourselves. Let's believe that today's fashion and textile industry can change and evolve and become more transparent. Visit fashionrevolution.org to get involved. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan, music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and edited by Tim Thornton. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends. You can find me on all the usual channels. <laughs>